Thank you for tuning to Cultural Corner with Dr. Kerry. Uh, welcome back to the Archaeology Fundamentals installment, where today we're going to treat the topic of fieldwork basics. So last week, I think you'll recall that we highlighted some of the methods archaeologists use to locate and identify archaeological sites. Uh, today, what we're going to do is continue that conversation about fieldwork and talk a bit about what happens next. What happens after archaeologists locate a site and, uh, and really begin the process of fieldwork uh, in earnest? Um, now, this is going to be a, a little bit of a technical uh, talk by necessity. And I'd like to begin this conversation with you by addressing first how it is that archaeological sites form in the first place. We'll talk about um, also how it is that materials preserve. And then once we have that foundation built, we're going to be primed to understand some of the basics of archaeological fieldwork. So what we call site formation processes uh, refers to the many ways in which human behavior and natural processes operate to produce the archaeological record. Cultural deposition is actually the most common way uh, that the archaeological record is formed. Um, so objects may be discarded because they've simply uh, been worn out or have broken. People throw things out as trash and that's how the archaeological record is formed. Um, sometimes things are sort of lost over time. Things may be lost inadvertently. Uh, sometimes we see people actually saving or caching objects for a later use. And uh, for whatever reasons, uh, these people don't return to them. So they form the archaeological record then. Um, or objects may be ritually interred uh, in a burial as a grave good. Um, so these are examples of what we call cultural deposition, the most common ways that the archaeological record is formed. But as archaeologists, uh, we know that sites are actually these very complex, in a way, sort of like living organisms or entities. Um, and really what I mean is that things can actually move around uh, once they've been buried. Uh, sometimes human behaviors result in uh, an artifact moving from an archaeological context in the ground actually back into what we call a systemic context, meaning they move back into a living cultural system. This is called reclamation. Um, and an example might be, you know, wrought iron nails scavenged from an old structure that are incorporated into the building of a new structure. So with reclamation, uh, typically there's a long period between deposition, when an artifact was deposited, and then when it was finally reclaimed uh, for another uh, purpose. Reuse. Uh, refers to human behaviors that recycle and reuse artifacts before they enter an archaeological context. 
So a prehistoric potter uh, might actually reuse misfired pottery sherds as a temper that we call grog in the production of uh, their new pottery. That's a good example, I think, of reuse. So in contrast to reclamation, there is little or no time between when the object, uh, you know, fell from its intended purpose and was reused for a different one. Cultural disturbance um, really refers to behaviors that modify artifacts that are in an archaeological context. Um, these behaviors, you know, quite literally cut through archaeological deposits. So, for example, the construction of a house in 1609 on top of a Native American site may literally cut through or destroy or damage any prehistoric features that are in the way of that construction episode. Now, uh, nature can also cause some havoc to archaeological sites. Floral turbation refers to the things that plant growth does to an archaeological site. Um, this, excuse me, this can include a couple things. Uh, it can include things like tree throw, uh, which is when a tree is uprooted by a storm. And as the tree becomes um, uprooted, uh, artifacts are actually tossed up with the tree. Floral turbation uh, also occurs through the process of uh, just natural plant growth as well. So as plants grow, um, they actually begin to loosen the soil and uh, really expand uh, the root system. So as they grow, plants can actually move artifacts up or down in an archaeological site. Faunal turbation uh, refers to the things that animals do to archaeological sites, the kind of havoc, you know, that they cause. So burrowing animals can move artifacts up or down. Um, in fact, we can actually see and identify uh, animal burrows in soil profiles. They appear as, you know, these voids that are filled in uh, with earthen debris, um, usually a, a dark colored earthen debris from a, almost like a top topsoil layer of sediment. Uh, so it's filled with debris and uh, it can be full of artifacts. These animal burrows that we're talking about um, are also known as crotovenas. Um, and they're actually excavated separately from the layer that they are located in. Um, you know, oftentimes they're, they're treated almost as if they are a feature. And this is really to make sure that any artifacts uh, recovered from an animal burrow are bagged separately. So we want to separate artifacts recovered from animal burrows because their original context has been lost. We're actually going to pivot back to uh, this very important concept of context um, in just a few minutes. Cryoturbation um, is another concern, and this is a concern perhaps more so in, uh, for example, northern climates. It refers to the freeze and thaw activity uh, in a soil that pushes larger artifacts towards the surface of a site and pushes smaller ones deeper down. 
So as soil freezes, it expands, pushing artifacts up. And as it thaws, it contracts and encourages small artifacts to slide deeper down. So cryoturbation can uh, actually create a site where artifacts are almost a size sorted from smallest to largest, which is obviously not, uh, you know, culturally accurate archaeological stratigraphy. Argillaturbation uh, now refers to wet and dry cycles that push large artifacts upward as the sediment swells and then downward as sediment dries. So uh, cracks, very deep cracks, may actually occur in super bone dry sediment. Um, and sometimes these cracks can be on the order of several meters deep, making it uh, just super easy for uh, small artifacts to fall deep into. Um, and the last site formation process that, that I wanna highlight for you before we move on is graviturbation. Uh, graviturbation is a condition in which artifacts move downslope through the force of gravity. So um, this might be assisted by uh, runoff, by precipitation runoff, um, and even mudslides, which uh, can carry artifacts some distance away from where they were originally deposited. Archaeologists also want to bear in mind that uh, certain depositional conditions may encourage or discourage what we call the preservation of material. The kind of materials that survive in the ground or out of sight uh, might actually determine excavation procedures, and, and we'll, we'll revisit that point in just a few minutes. Um, you know, we as archaeologists do like to have some kind of idea about what we expect to find and the conditions that these items might be in before we excavate so that we can implement, uh, you know, real proper procedures. And it's really organic materials that are of concern here. It's organic materials that may or may not preserve in the ground. Uh, decomposition is carried out by uh, microorganisms that require three things, warmth, oxygen, and water. So if one of these elements is lacking or missing, uh, decomposition is hampered. So what I thought we'd do here, because it's important, is look at just a couple sites together where materials have been excellently preserved. Um, and as we're talking about these sites, I'd like to encourage my listeners to think a bit about what conditions caused such remarkable preservation at each site. So let's talk about Lovelock Cave. Lovelock Cave is a really interesting site. Uh, it was identified in 1912, just north of the Carson Desert in Nevada. And it was excavated in 1924 by Mark Harrington of the New York Museum of the American Indian. You know, what's remarkable about Lovelock was the discovery of such well-preserved basketry and painted Thule reed duck decoys that still had applied feathers stuck on them. 
and these were dated to about 2,000 years ago. So here, it's a case where the cave's uh, dry climate helped preserve these organic materials. We can talk a bit about another favorite site of mine. Uh, this is the site of Ozette, um, and it is yet again another remarkable instance of preservation. Ozette is located on Washington State's Olympic Peninsula. It was a major beachside village uh, that was about a mile long, uh, and it was inhabited by the Maka people up until about the 1920s. Um, Sometime in the early uh, 18th century, though, uh, there was a catastrophic mudslide that encased a significant part of the village uh, in mud. It actually, uh, the mudslide actually sheared the roofs uh, right off of the cedar plank houses um, and actually capped in the artifacts uh, and the structures. Um, so the site was excavated in uh, in the 1970s by archaeologist Richard Doherty of Washington State University. He and his crew recovered over 42,000 artifacts. It's a lot of artifacts. Um, and a significant proportion, relatively speaking, of these objects were organic things. Baskets, hats, hooks, bowls, clubs, combs even a wooden canoe. So these are all organic objects that preserved here at Ozette because of that wet, oxygen-deprived environment that was created by that early 18th century mudslide. And I want to talk about one more example of preservation with you. Um, and this is a site where Utsi the Iceman was identified at. Um, it's a great example of preservation. So in 1991, uh, the story goes that two skiers in the Alps stumbled across human remains in such remarkable condition that they were almost certain they were the remains of perhaps a recently lost a skier. But upon analysis, the remains actually belong to a man uh, who has been called Utsi, who lived over 5,300 years ago. So this frozen Alps environment lacked warmth and preserved Utzi's remains to the degree that his ancient tattoos were still visible. His clothing was also preserved, so we know what he was wearing. He wore a belt, leggings, a deerskin coat, and a grass cape. He also uh, wore calfskin shoes filled with grass. He carried a copper axe bow and arrows, a knife, a net, scrapers, and containers. The contents of his stomach also preserved, and archaeologists were able to discern his final meal of barley, wheat, and deer meat, which seems to indicate that he probably died in the spring as those food resources typically are only available there in the spring. DNA analysis revealed that Utzi was lactose intolerant, that he had brown eyes, typo blood, and suffered Lyme disease. And skeletal analysis indicated that he was about 30 years old at death, had cuts on his hands, and suffered trauma to his shoulder. 
um, to the excuse me to the degree uh, that some archaeologists believe that Utsi may have been uh, under attack. So now that we have some understanding of how archaeological sites are formed and how things become preserved, I think we're primed now to pivot back to the technical practice of archaeological fieldwork. And I think a good place to begin this conversation is by quite literally unpacking what's inside an archaeologist's tool bag. So inside uh, my tool bag, you might find uh, pull tapes to record distances, work gloves to protect uh, hands from sharp objects that we find, like iron nails and shards of glass, a builder's level and string to record depth, you can expect to find pencils to write field notes. And actually pencil is usually preferred over pen because pencil will not run in the rain like ink can. An archeologist will also pack a compass uh, for orienting and taking direction, um, long nails or spikes uh, to help us stake out a properly square excavation unit, a ruler to help us precisely draw features on graph paper to scale. Um, I actually carry root clippers too uh, to snip uh, vegetation out of the way uh, in, an, in the immediate excavation area. Um, we also have archival grade plastic bags uh, in our toolkits. Uh, and this is where we will actually store the artifacts that we recover. Um, some of us also carry uh, things that might seem a little bit odd, like those old-fashioned film canisters. Um, and some of us still carry these to store, uh, you know, any small and delicate artifacts, to separate them out uh, from, from the bundle of artifacts in which they were found with. We might also carry aluminum foil, tin foil, uh, to wrap delicate uh, radiocarbon samples. But the most important tool that she will carry, though, uh, is her trowel. Archaeologists use a pointed mason's trowel to gently peel back uh, the soil layer by layer. And it's Marshalltown brand uh, of trowel that is preferred by most archaeologists. So after that, uh, after we've identified a site and its boundaries uh, through, say, shovel testing, like we talked about in the previous episode, it's time now to take a better look in the ground. Uh, so here's where we're going to begin opening up uh, perhaps somewhat larger areas. So we might begin here by opening what's called a test excavation. This is an initial square excavation unit uh, to determine a site's potential for answering research questions. These are larger than shovel tests um, and actually take uh, more time to complete, but they allow us to get a better glimpse inside the ground and a clear view of the stratified sequence of artifacts. Any artifacts that we encounter here, just like with shovel testing, are saved and bagged according to the level that they were identified in. Um, depending on the results of, a, of test excavation, uh, the results that a test excavation produces, uh, we may go ahead and expand the excavation by opening uh, more square units or uh, ultimately trenches. 
Here I'd like to emphasize uh, you know, again, that archaeologists simply do not grab stuff from the ground senselessly uh, and go, kind of maybe like how you've seen in movies or Indiana Jones. Excavating a site is a super meticulous, it's a super meticulous and very uh, controlled process. We excavate layer by layer, uh, excuse me, layer by layer or stratum by stratum. A stratum is really a layer of homogeneous material um, that might look different than other layers in a soil profile uh, because of changes in texture, color, rock, organic content, uh, or even compactness. As archaeologists, you know, we prefer, we endeavor to dig what are called natural levels. Um, natural levels are a subdivision of an excavation unit uh, based on natural breaks in the sediment. However, there are times where archaeologists may need to arbitrarily divide uh, very thick levels of more than 10 centimeters thick when natural levels are lacking. Um, and the reason why we do this is to maintain the most precise control over what we call the context of an artifact. So um, this brings us back to the point of context, right, that we mentioned a few moments ago. One of the most important things to pay attention to in the field is the context of an artifact. Um, and this refers to an artifact's relationship to other artifacts, features, and the site's stratigraphy. Context is so crucial to know, for without it, uh, we actually can't infer much from the archaeological record. So say, for example, that you're walking a Civil War battlefield and identify a, a mini A-ball on the ground surface. It may have been washed out from a slope. Uh, it may have been pushed up uh, by a burrowing fox, for example. Without knowing where the mini A-ball originated from, uh, we can't say much about the object if we were to just take it from, from where we found it on the ground surface. However, um, if we discovered that object by excavating a site, uh, if, we, if we recovered that same object from a stratified layer of a site that, say, contained other things, uh, human remains, it's then that we can begin to tell a more detailed story about what event may have caused the deposition of that mini A ball. I like to talk about the Folsom site in New Mexico to really drive home how important uh, context is here to field work. The Folsom site is a site, uh, you know, that, that's pretty well known to archaeologists in North America because it's so old. Uh, it's actually associated with not the oldest, but one of the oldest archaeological cultures in North America. Um, and it's been dated to about 10,000 years ago. So it's, it's not the oldest archaeological site we know of, but it, it really is up there. It's among the oldest. The site was actually identified uh, more than 100 years ago in 1908 by George McJunction. Um, McJunkin wasn't, uh, wasn't, in, was enslaved, uh, as a boy, but, uh, but became a free man, um, and took up ranching. Um, McJunkin, 
observed ancient uh, bones belonging to an extinct form of bison associated with stone tools um, exposed on a ranch. Uh, he was working in Folsom, New Mexico, following a really severe flash flood. Uh, Jesse Figgins of the Colorado Museum of Natural History excavated the site in 1926 and documented the context or the association of the bison bones and stone tools in situ. When we use the word in situ, um, we're referring to the original place that an object was found. Now, this was a pretty significant finding, especially at the time, because it was the first time an association between extinct bison and, uh, and artifacts was documented. Um, in fact, a fluted Folsom spear point was identified in between the ribs of the extinct bison, uh, you know, providing good evidence, really suggesting that humans have been in North America since at least 10,000 years ago. Before the news of uh, the Folsom site finding broke, um, you know, people of the early 20th century uh, believed that humans had only been in North America um, for about 3,000 years. So returning now uh, back to our discussion of the technical side of fieldwork. So once we begin peeling back those layers of soil, that soil needs to be removed from our excavation unit. Archaeologists move sediment, uh, usually in large buckets, from the excavation area so that that sediment can be sifted for artifacts. Some archaeologists uh, make their own sifting devices, which is great, um, though these can also be easily purchased from uh, retailers online these days. Now, uh, we sift sediment because it's nearly impossible to see every little thing uh, with the human eye uh, while we're digging. Uh, 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 excuse me, a quarter inch uh, screen mesh is a standard size, um, though finer mesh screen sizes on the order of uh, an eighth of an inch or a sixteenth, uh, a sixteenth of an inch may be uh, utilized if an archaeologist is looking for a, like super tiny artifacts. Water screening is another technique that we use to recover small artifacts, um, but also artifacts that may be encased in a clay deposit. A deposit of soil is placed here on a thin gauge screen, so say a sixteenth uh, of an inch. And then soil is washed away uh, with hoses so that what's left on the screen are tiny little things that we can pick out by hand or by tweezers if necessary and bag according to the level in which they were found in. Another option for recovering tiny little things is flotation. Flotation involves the use of fluid suspension to recover small things like burnt plant material, uh, bone fragments, uh, seeds, and other small things. So this flotation device is like this large uh, drum that might be used to store liquid. I don't mean like a musical instrument. I mean more of like an industrial drum. So the device is like this sort of like large industri industrial drum that's outfitted with this catchment uh, screen. 
so the drum is uh, is filled with water and a bagged sample of soil is poured into it. The technician might um, agitate the water a bit to encourage light fraction, like charcoal and burnt seeds, for example, to float to the top of the water surface, while heavy fraction, like uh, metal fragments, for example, will sink to the bottom. The light fraction can easily be skimmed off, and the heavy fraction actually gets caught in the catchment area so that it can too be easily retrieved. So flotation is another quick and inexpensive option to separate sediment from the tiniest of archeological objects. Now it may perhaps surprise some of you, I think, to learn that only about 15% of an archeologist's time is spent doing field work and excavating sites. The other 85% is dedicated to lab work and report writing. We're going to talk about lab work in a separate episode, but I'll highlight here one of the most important things that happens in a lab, uh, that being cataloging. So an artifact catalog is a database for artifacts. A technician will record every single object that is brought back from the field. Every single object uh, receives its own unique identification number. Um, and that number is written directly on the artifact um, or label could be printed out. Uh, but if it's written on the artifact, it's uh, written in archival grade pen and sealed with clear nail polish uh, or glue, uh, which can easily be removed with a little dab of acetone. The ID number uh, of the object will also be recorded in the database so that the object and database will neatly correlate to one another. Um, and then the technician will go ahead and record into the database um, observable characteristics of the object, um, like size, uh, weight. So usually techs have a scale next to their computer desk, right, where they're working, um, color, texture, material, um, method of manufacture, um, an estimated date, for example. Aside from cataloging, um, there are lots of other activities that take place in an archaeology lab, um, like carefully cleaning artifacts, mending broken artifacts, applying methods of dating. So we talk about how, you know, text techs are responsible for dating a lot of the objects, um, we're going to have to spend some time talking about how these methods work and how we can apply them. Um, other things that happen in a lab uh, include evaluating whether any intervention through conservation is necessary, uh, perhaps for the most vulnerable, frail, uh, and brittle objects. We're going to treat these topics and more in the following episodes. So here's a little, there's a little teaser, if you will, um, of what's to come. As always, thank you so much for streaming the fundamentals of archeology, span uh, season on Cultural Corner with Dr. Kerry. I hope you have an awesome week and take good care.